Oh. Oh. And he was in the uh, ER last night at 1 o'clock, I think, with his wife, and I don't know if he had any sleep last night. He was home, um, but sedated. Um, this morning when he called, he said it looks like he's going to have an operation. And I guess it's something that it's a, it's a recurrence of a problem he had, or a repeat of a problem he had a year ago. Um, His gallbladder went out. So, I like the electricity. Well, I, he said, he said I blew it. I mean, it sounded like a part of the car, you know, but I don't know how you describe it, but that's the way he described it. And um, who else called? Um, no, and Ron and Priscilla. Hello. Hi, Karen. Um, Ron Priscilla, I don't know if you know, but they were evicted from their house, I guess, a couple of weeks ago, and and um, actually were pretty distressed. Um, but I got a couple of letters from Priscilla. Um, that to me were remarkable, just remarkable, truly remarkable. Their their condition was a little bit desperate. They didn't have a home, um, but I just saw nothing but strength in her letter. I mean, she was full of hope, and and her way of describing it was that she'd read a reflection, and that she and Joe had, or Ron had read a reflection in the Magnificat, and it's as if a light had gone on and she felt there was a purpose to it all so that even though they were homeless and I think maybe even without financial means, I can't be, even without financial means, so in a situation most of us would find horrible and I think initially was horrible for them, was bearable as if she f saw God in it and saw that this was something, I mean this was not just words, she genuinely felt that there was a meaning. The way she said this a couple of times, she said, you probably won't understand, and she didn't explain it, but what she was meaning was, there's no way to tell you how much we see this as a part of something meant to be. So tremendous faith in what's happening. And um, a couple of other people couldn't make it, but um, anyway, I'll, I'll include these in my prayers. I wanted to say tonight, before we said our prayer, that... Um, I was joking about it one night when the prayer list was expanding, but deep in my heart, I, um, it's what I felt was um, something very different. It was like a grace given to us as a group here, for whatever this means, because we do say prayers, to have people open up about their prayers, because what became clear to me when it first happened, when we first did that, was the the kinds of suffering and sorrow that goes on in so many of us that we're not aware of and that we could share in that that it would be open to us so that we're asked to um, carry each other in our prayers was a real grace a real a real blessing for us um, it reminded me you know we get together to talk about literature and I hope the affirmations we all find in it that there's a strengthen it. Otherwise, I, I certainly wouldn't be doing this right now. But even with these affirmations, there's this great sorrow that um, 
defines us as a people. We carry these wounds, and we all have them. You know, and um, so um, I hope um, I hope you all will carry these prayers with you. Um, pray for the people, particularly the ones that are closest to your heart. And if any other needs come up, prayers, let me know for sure, so we can include them. It's funny because it started out. I've not been comfortable with the word class from the beginning. I don't even like using that word. This time we have together these meetings you know, that we came together to look at literature and suddenly this whole spiritual realm of wounds and sorrows and burdens opened up and I'm grateful for it, grateful for it. So, um, Let's start. <clears throat> any, any prayers? Anybody want to include anything besides those we have already? Karen, in the week that you were gone, we prayed for you and the Thank you. sorrow that um, you had that week, and I'm glad to see you again. Glad you're back. Okay, name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Thank you again, Lord, for the gift of our life from you, the gift of yourself to us, particularly in the Mass this morning, and for your words to us, for all that Father does with those words to help make your presence to him living for us um, and for this time together. I have a couple of special prayers before we get to the names. Um, come Holy Spirit, um, enter all of us, help us to be one with you in spirit, open ourselves to what you ask so that in everything we do we carry you, move one with you, grow into you. You call us all to a wholeness um, and there's no way to that wholeness except through a cross um, to learn to die to ourselves, to put ourselves away. I ask a special blessing on all of us to help with that work. Where we fail, where we stumble, um, strengthen us to pick ourselves up again to be with you um, until the promise of that wholeness is fulfilled for each of us. I ask a special blessing on um, Rejo. Um, um, thank you for the time that we have had with him, um, the promise that we see in him. Watch over him as he moves forward. Uh, let him grow ever closer to you in all that he undertakes. Um, I ask a special blessing on Carrie, Amy, Daniel, bring him back. Um, um, there are a couple of people um, whose children they're in their marriages um, watch over Debbie's son and his wife help them in their struggles in their marriage um, and the couple that were in the accident last week um, receive the one who died um, and watch over the survivor be with Dan um, protect him um, let him know your presence in these difficulties. Let it be so for all of us where we face them. And I ask a special blessing on Ron and Priscilla. Um, continue to strengthen them in their faith. Um, and let any of us help who can. Um, let them know the help that is here for them if they need it. We um, offer all these prayers in your name, Christ. Um, amen. Amen. Okay, just everybody got this this sheet on the on the logos. 
I have to read the last line. Wait, <laughs> Marcy's covering up. You should cover up. Um, listen, to, to try to make this simple, I, I remember I gave you that sheet in St. Thomas. You may not have it, but, but if, if you can go through your... Don't, you don't need to get it out right now. Just I gave you the sheet from St. Thomas's Treatise on Love. Yes. And in that treatise, he says that love moves all things. But he made it clear in this one um, question that I gave you that all things, all things are moved. All things move. That's that's the def. By the way, that's one definition of nature. Nature's in motion. Everything that's in motion. He says that all things are have an appetite. They move. Um, and he des- he describes three grades of appetite. There's a sensitive, a, a vegetative appetite. All plant life is moved towards a good. Sensitive appetite is the appetite that animals have, right? The intellective appetite is peculiar to humans, yeah? We call that the will. I don't want to go through that diagram, but if you'll just picture appetites directed towards physical things, appetites directed towards the good. this is St. Thomas, and this is very much a part of what Dante's doing. There's appetites in humans directed towards physical things. There's appetites that are directed towards the good as apprehended. And that's the crucial difference. As apprehended. Um, and then there's the intellect. So there are basically two faculties, the intellect and the appetitive in the human soul. But the appetitive breaks down into two kinds. Our appetites towards brownies, cake, you know, all the things we saw in the upper levels of purgatory, things, um, food, drink, sex. Um, The difference between us and the rest of creation is that we have an intellect. So our, the appetitive, what's called the intellective appetite, can move towards the good as apprehended. So human beings have choice. No, nothing else in creation does. It's what separates us. So the free will that we have sets us off apart from everything else in creation. A tree can't choose to be other than it is. Actually, today we're seeing instances where humans can choose to be other than they are. It's, I don't, want to, I don't want to go down that road today, but I hope you all know what I'm talking about here. We have choice, and choice implies reason. The two cannot be separated for St. Thomas. The fact that we have reason means that we have a will. We can choose. You can't separate them for St. Thomas. The fact that we have a free will implies a reason. We can reason things out and make a choice. Yeah? So nothing else in creation has free will. It can't choose. It doesn't, it's not rational. And remember in that, in that article I gave you, Thomas said that um, humans have an intellectual faculty and, and an intellective appetite called the will. So we can move our wills towards things that our minds grasp. And our minds are different from our senses because our minds can grasp universals. We can get beyond particular concrete things. We can grasp justice or truth or in a way that the rest of creation can't. So he said all things in nature have um, reason. 
The difference is in the human subject, the reason is situated in the subject, in us as humans. In animals and plants, the reason, the apprehensive faculty, what he calls the apprehensive faculty, is in the creator who made them. So all things partake in it. Humans can make choices because we're made in the image of God. Nothing else in creation can. But everything else has everything else in creation has an appetite towards the good. A flower, I've gone over this, a flower, a wolf, a porpoise, it doesn't matter. They all move towards some good. In them, the apprehensive power is in the creator and and um, the signs of it are left in that thing, whether it's a flower or an animal. And in that sense, everything in creation partakes of God. Human beings are distinct because we have the we have a power with our reason to turn away from God. We can refuse him, we can sin. So the presence of that in nature, everywhere in nature, is partly what we what we mean when we talk about the logos. That there's this rationality this reasonableness or this affinity to reason in everything in creation. All things participate in it. And um, the source of all of that is God, and more particularly, as we know it, Christ, because he's, he's the one who made everything. And we're going to get to, the reason I'm taking time with this tonight is not to put Marcy on the spot, because her question was a good one. It's because everything that we're going to read about in the Paradiso is going to come to this. It's, it's going to be in some of the passages I read tonight. But I just wanted to let you know, I wrote this passage um, in response to Marcy. Um, you appreciate it. Uh, Truly, I do. No, I, it, it's, it's just, well, it goes so much to what we're talking about, Marcy. And, but I want to take a minute to read this last, if, if everybody will turn to the back page. <laughs> I'm going to read the last sentence. sentence. Bob, would you please explain it to us and then use it in a sentence. Yeah. We can do this better, be, that is, we can all get together and talk about something on the trust that we will, we're not doing it in vain because we all have reason in common. It, it is a shock to me that people at universities can get together and deny the logos in nature, and the larger part of the academic communities do today, they deny that there's any such thing. If that's the case, how in the world can they communicate with each other across their disciplines? How does somebody from physics talk with somebody in history and politics and make sense? The whole assumption in a university is that there's a university of learning, that there's a unity to what they're doing, or they could not talk to each other. The very existence of a university implies a logos, that every field has a reason to get to this reasonableness in the universe. So when I start hearing that stuff, I go, what is wrong with these people who are supposed to be the most intelligent people in the world today? But anyway, this is my attempt to just briefly describe the logos. And here's my last sentence. We can do this, all of these things that I'm talking about, because of this logos in nature, this intelligibility or order to all things. There's my sentence. One simple <laughs> sentence. That's for Marcy. Logos is the order of all things. Yeah, and the, but the, but, but the, but the signs of an apprehensive power, an intellect, present in all things. It's that reasonableness present there, the signs of it that makes it possible for I us to know them to and for us to talk to each other about things. Otherwise, we would be at cross purposes in everything we did. Okay. Um, 
Just a quick um, look ahead. The next um, reading, um, I don't like this assignment. I have to find a new language. Or the, the next reading we're going to do together from um, 9 to 17. Is that right? 9 to 16? Um, I think you really enjoy. Um, I've started reading it again, and you guys are keeping me on my toes here. I haven't read Dante in a long time, so I'm just barely ahead of you, if, if at all. I think you're going to enjoy because what happens in the next section is that Dante is going to, as you know, he's he's moving through the heavens so that we're in the presence of people in beatitude and joy. Um, and uh, in book nine, nine or ten. He's greeted by this circle of lights that spin around and dance. And this voice emerges, and it turns out to be the voice of St. Thomas, who will sing a song in celebration of the Franciscans. And as I was reading that this morning, I thought, this is why Francis asked us to do this. Um, <laughs> well, you can, you can laugh. I, I should have marked it. God bless, I should have. Um, in, in, the sec, in the section that I'm talking about, St. Thomas tells the story of this love affair between St. Francis and his mistress. And it sounds very passionate. In fact, there's some very erotic things about this. I, I don't want to touch on them because they're outside of our reading, but next week when we, when we meet, I'm going um, to talk about them. Very erotic. Um, and he said that this, this guy stepped forward and um, he said, for the first time in 1,100 years, the church was on its right path. And I'm sorry I didn't have that. I should have, um, I should, uh, next week when we do it, I'll, I'll pick it up. But I thought, that's why Pope Francis did this. Because what, what, what St. Francis did was reform the church and turn it away from the, its path towards avarice and greed and wealth and the, that intertwining with the state that you've all seen now. I hope you read those things, because if you do, it's an eye-opener. As I said before, I think one of the great accomplishments of the medieval church was the struggle that it, it, un, it undertook to extricate itself, to sort itself out. And Dante speaking directly to that when he said, St. Francis finally took the church back to its path. What he did was embrace poverty with Christ. He had the stigmata, he stepped outside, he, he left his father, his family, because his family was too given to wealth. I mean, I hope we're all hearing that in our age. It's what, it's what Pope Francis is trying to do for the church in some ways. So anyway, St. Thomas will, will sing this canticle, this song in praise of Francis. And then the Franciscans will arrive and circle and dance, and then they will sing a song, a canticle, in praise of the Dominicans. And what we see here in the center of heaven, I mean, at, at this point where Dante greets them in the, in the scheme of things, this wonderful exchange of charities, that, that, that in heaven there is nothing but poetry, grace, harmony, this wonderful accord you know, with people um, in this perfect dance. So um, you should enjoy it because it's, it's so communal. It's, it seems to me it's Dante saying, this is typical of heaven. This is what heaven is. Um, okay.
quick review. Last time we met, um, I tried to give a, a large, a broad overview of um, what was behind us that prepared us for the Paradiso. And um, one of the points of focus for us in the Purgatorio was to see what was going on in Purgatory. And, and I suggested as we went through it that it was this struggle to bring justice and mercy together, the two of them, the two keys, because one without the other would do nothing but harm. And the entire work of purgatory was to help the humans become virtuous, to recover the virtue that they were meant to have. And um, they couldn't do that without the help of God. We saw all of that. And Mary was the, was the perfect embodiment of every single virtue. Remember when we went through it? Um, the, the virtue was the virtue opposite the sin. So every goad was an example of Mary doing something that was opposed to the sin itself. So for example, in pride, um, the example they used, I think, was, was her um, acceptance of God's will for her in the, in the Annunciation. The humility that she showed, let it be done unto my will, unto your will. And as we went up the purgatory, we saw that the first goad of every level is Mary, showing a virtue. The four virtues that we're going to see again, they're going to appear right here in the lower stages of heaven, as you remember, are um, fortitude, um, justice, and going in the order we got them here, um, temperance, and prudence. Um, <clears throat> actually, this is going to be a little bit out of order, but let me do this. Over the weekend, um, <laughs> Irene was saying that she finds herself, I guess, laughing or enjoying this experience of reading the Divine Comedy and constantly find herself um, relating it to the readings and how directly they speak to each other. And I find I find the same thing happening every time I go to Mass. I feel like that could serve as the beginning for one of our talks together. I mean, the, the Mass, the readings. Um, same thing happened this weekend. Let me do this because it's going to speak to what we're doing. This was the, the reading from Mass on Saturday night. This is from the Acts of the Apostles. This is Paul. When the time for Pentecost was fulfilled, they were all in one place together. Suddenly there came from the sky a noise like a strong driving wind, and it filled the entire house in which they were. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire, which parted and came to rest on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in different tongues. And the Spirit enabled them to proclaim now there were devout Jews from every nation under heaven staying in Jerusalem. At this sound they gathered in a large crowd, but they were confused because each one heard them speaking in his own language. They were astounded. And in amazement they asked, Are not all these people who are speaking Galileans? And how does each of us hear them in his native language? We are Parthians, Medes, Elamites, inhabitants of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Amphelia, Egypt, and the districts of Libya near Cyrene, as well as travelers from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. 
Yet we hear them speaking in our own tongue of the mighty acts of God. When we go into the Paradiso, we're going to find facets of everything in taking different form. Dante keeps talking about the disparity of things, the differences between things. And yet what he's always asking us to be aware of is that all of these things are unified. It's as if all, all things in, if you remember the, uh, the poem we read by Hopkins, the, the uh, Kingfisher Catches Fire, he said that each thing has its own voice, but all of them are speaking one voice. That there are all these things in creation, there's this great diversity, and yet they're all unified in God. So it's like everybody having different tongues, a different self, but the same self, the same unity. So in this, this panoply, this, this great diversity, St. Thomas said one of the signs of the perfection of creation was its, was its variety, this great diversity, is this great unity. Um, when, we were, when we were moving through the Purgatorio, we saw that um, all these things were unified in one, one thing, that was Christ. He's the one who brought all of these things together and gave them a meaning. We had these four different virtues, fortitude, justice, temperance, and prudence. Fortitude is learning to hold on when things get hard. Justice is doing the right thing giving what's due, and we saw that nobody can do that without learning to order themselves first, to, to make themselves better. Temperance is showing restraint with respect to earthly things, learning to love them as we should, and prudence is always knowing what to do under the right circumstances, when and how. It's the wisdom of ad adapting your actions to the best that can be done in a certain situation, being prudent. Um, we're going to see these taking place here, but what we saw in purgatory was that all of, that our whole life should be an effort to make ourselves virtuous, to make ourselves good, to take on that struggle. It was Father's words this morning in the Mass. He read this, the letter from St. Paul, the other one that I wanted to read. I hope you won't mind me going back and forth a little bit here. Um, this is from this morning, too. Um, Beloved, who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show his works by a good life in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. Wisdom of this kind does not come down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every foul practice. But the wisdom from above is first of all pure, then peaceable, gentle, compliant, full of mercy and good fruits, without inconstancy or insincerity, and the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace for those who cultivate peace, the word of the Lord. This is, all that took place in the purgatory was to help develop those virtues because they all take us to graces. Um, Virgil, remember, he was a virtuous man, but he was in the first circle of the virtuous pagans. He didn't suffer, he wasn't being punished, but he wasn't in heaven. The whole purpose of purgatory was to recover those virtues because they were carriers to supernatural graces. So without those graces, we would not know peace, gentleness, compliance, mercy, good fruits, 
Those are the those are the fruits of the Holy Spirit. So everything that went on in the Purgatorio was to recover the natural virtues, but in 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 a way that involves supernatural help, the help given by God. Remember, I said when we when I put those mercy and justice together, that Christ was visible everywhere, or present everywhere, even if nobody saw him. Because he was offering his love when we didn't deserve it, and justice was getting what we deserve. It was the tension between both of those that, that was the action of the purgatorio. Okay? Um, and it's at this point that Virgil steps down and Beatrice steps forward as a guy. And I suggested last week that um, that it was appropriate for a woman to take that place because wisdom always stands in a position of vulnerability to this world because this world is too given to power. It uses the mind in a wrong way to justify power, justifications, rationalizations. It's the nature of the, the world to justify what it's doing. Beatrice comes from another order and, um, and I want to pick up there just as a, as a way of helping to see who she is. Remember we talked about women when we did the Odyssey and, and Homer's critique of the women and all the various roles she's played. She's a helper, she's a devourer, she's a temptress, she's a guide, she's an end. Penelope is that towards which Homer is her, Odysseus is constantly moving to get home to his wife. Beatrice takes all of those on and adds something to them. And let me just quickly um, go through this um, to, to, to suggest how she's different. Take a look quickly at um, uh, Picarda, page 405. Remember that all the souls that meet Dante are coming from the Imperium. They're here. They're all together. They're only coming to greet him to gradually get him accustomed to the, to the light that's too bright for him to stand initially here. So he will constantly have souls coming to approach him to reveal a greater degree of brilliance, that is a greater degree of blessedness. Um, but they're all, they're all in heaven. They're all perfectly happy. Nobody's unhappy, and Picardo makes that clear. Nobody's unhappy. But they have a brilliance in proportion to their what they merited from their own actions. How much they were open to graces, how much they received in the way of graces. Um, when Picard, she's, so, Picard is here with Beatrice. Um, but, and we don't know where Beatrice would come, presumably from everything that Dante shows us, she'd be much, she'd be greater in brightness than, say, Picard or Constance, but, but I want to read this here on page 405, 406 in the middle of the page. Dante asks her if she's unhappy being where she is because she's come down to the moon. And she says, 406, if we desire to be higher up, then our desires would not be in accord with his will who assigns us to this sphere. There's that as another wills. His will is our peace. It's Mary. Think carefully what love is, and you'll see such discord has no place within these rounds, since to be here is to exist in love. Indeed, the essence of this blessed state is to dwell here with his holy will, so that there is no will but one with his. How could it be elsewhere? I mean, to be in God's presence, we need to be one with him. 
The order of our rank from height to height throughout this realm is pleasing to the realm as to that king who wills us to his will. In his will is our peace. Now turn, turn to page 30. That's not Beatrice, that's Bacarda, but she belongs to the same realm as Beatrice. Turn to page 30. Remember how the inferno opened. 30. 430 or 30. 30. 30. 30. 30. 30. 30. 30. 30. Remember, who, who did Dante first meet in the first level of actual sin? Francisca. Remember the words that I just wrote about being in accord with, what was that for? Oh, being in accord with God's will? Yes. Throughout this, it's pleasing to the realm as to that king who wills us to his will. Here's Francisca. Oh, remember Dante, he's, remember that he passes out because he's so taken by her charm and beauty um, and her pity. It's an expression of self-pity, but. O living creature, gracious and so kind, who makes your way here through this dingy air to visit us who strain the world with blood. If we could claim as friend the king of kings, we would beseech him that he grant you peace. You who show pity for our atrocious play. Remember right from the beginning we talked about one of the great tasks that Dante would have to undertake is to learn to be careful of pity because it's too easy to, and he passes out. So, But her words, if we could claim his friend, the king of kings, she's blaming God. Remember, he's the fault. She can't go to him because he's unfair to her. Okay, so think about the difference between Francisca and, um, and uh, Picarda. Turn to page 99. When we got to the depths of hell, we encountered this woman, remember at the bottom, this was in the level of flatterers, remember, Thias, the whore. She wasn't in a place of pander or pandering or where you would exploit sex. She's where she is because she flattered at the bottom of page 99. Of that repulsive and disheveled tramp scratching herself with sh <laughs> shitty fingernails, spreading her legs while squatting up and down. It is Theos, the whore, who gave this answer to her lover when he asked, am I, am I very worthy of your thanks? Very? Nay, incredibly so. I mean, what she's doing is flatter, manipulating people so that she will see them again. Um, so Francisca, Theos, page 267. I tried to just put some some feminine. I mean, we, in the Odyssey, we've got much more to work with. But here, we're, we're remember, this is the level of the envious where we met Guido. Remember, Guido was the one who talked about partnership and sharing, and Dante was puzzled by it. And Virgil explains it in the next canto, and he says, "Wherever you put your mind on material things, you're always going to be envious because the more people who want them, the less there is, and then you get envious. It's because you don't put your mind on spiritual things." Because if you did, the more there are, the more radiance and the more love. That's, by the way, that's, that's Dante's description of heaven. You, you recount it. The more people there are, the more luminous it becomes. The love grows in intensity. Here is um, Sapia, <laughs> ironic for wisdom, middle of 367. I was a Sienese here with the rest. I mend my evil life with tears and beg of him that he reveal himself to us. Though named Sapia, sapient, I was not. I always reveled in another's grief, enjoying that more than my own welfare. Go down. 
It happened that my townsmen were engaged in battle just outside Coley. I praised God for what already he had willed. Our men were scattered on the plain and forced to take the bitter course of flight. I watched the chase seize with a surge of joy so fierce. I raised my shameless face to God and cried, I have lost all my fear of thee. The wrong way to love God, right? I mean, the wrong reasons to love him. I was the black bird when the sun comes out a while. I did not seek my peace with God, not till my final hour came. And even then, penance would not yet have reduced my debt had it not been for one Pierre Petieno, who moved by charity to grieve for me, remembered me in all his holy prayers. It's another instance of this idea of the mystical body, that so often things are... This thing in America, God, it's so distressing. The, what Suzanne and I were talking about the other day, she was calling it the cult of individualism. I can do whatever I want. Ralph Waldo Emerson wrote the, the what do you call it, talismanic essay for the American culture, um, self-reliance. Academics hold it up everywhere. They see it as, it's one of the transcendentals. Do you know that period of the transcendentalism? Hawthorne and, and others, Thoreau and... Emerson was the sort of leader of that transcendentalist movement. And he wrote this essay, which is a landmark essay that teachers teach it all the time in freshman comp, self-reliance. It, it's looked at as the American doctrine. What separates us from the rest of the world is we've got this great capacity to be self-reliant, to not depend on anybody. What Dante shows us over and over again is that we can't get along without the help of other people. Imagine her life without the prayers of this man. It's just another instance of the way in which people's prayers help where help is really needed. So, so why Beatrice? Um, if we look at Beatrice, even if we set her next to Penelope, Penelope was an end. There's nothing Beatrice does that's for herself. She doesn't manipulate. She doesn't feel sorry for herself. She doesn't blame. She comes from God. She is a Christ-bearing image. Remember, she's the one who went to get Virgil. There's nothing that she does that doesn't have his good as its end. She is a servant. Towards the end of the Paradiso, she will fall away. She will give way to um, Bernard. Bernard, um, who was a great lover of Mary. Bernard will help Dante complete his... It'll be a male, but... I mean, they're, they're servants, all of them. So she is all of the things that we've been... I mean, but she's not, she does, she's not a devourer. She, I, there's not a woman in all the literature that we've seen that's as stern as she is. She's absolutely stern in everything she does. She's bringing Christ to the world, to Dante. Not for herself. Um, she knows that. Because at some point she will let him go and give him up. So everything she does, she does in service. She is Christ-bearing. Um, that's, that's why um, she is both a great grace and a danger. Um, finally, on page 378, before we just to, to finish up this, um, at the bottom of 378, this is when the procession, the Beatrician procession, approaches Dante. It's, it's the Mass. Remember, it's the enactment of the Mass with Christ at the center of it. At the bottom, a short time, and you shall be outside the walls. Then you with me shall live eternally citizen of that Rome where Christ is Roman. 
Now for the good of sinners in your world, observe the chariot well, and what you see put into writing. Page 384. At the top of the page. And when you write, be sure that you describe the sand condition of the tree you saw despoiled, not once but twice here in the spot. Remember that was the tree of life that had been ruined by the fall, and once it was connected with the, the chariot pole, the, the Christ image, it recovered its life. It all sp sprang back to life. Dante witnessed that matter. So, um, Beatrice's wisdom, she brings, she's, she, wisdom is always vulnerable to power. It's feminine in all of its mythic forms, in Athena, in the, in the, um, the, the, the work that Suzanne reminded me of, the philosophy, uh, Constellation of Philosophy, Boethius's great work. By the way, Dante's going to meet Boethius in that circle with St. Thomas. One of the greatest works in all of history. It's a, any, I, if you guys want to look for something to read, a short work, it's philosophic, but it's very, it's dramatic. It's a, Boethius is in a cell awaiting his death, and philosophy comes to him and says, stop crying. Um, toughen up here a little bit. He's got all this stuff to, uh, to be glad about. And it's, it's an amazing little book. Uh, <clears throat> wisdom has always been feminine because it, I, I believe it stands in a position of vulnerability. It's always faced with a threat of force because the world wants things, its own will, to have its will, to impose its will, to use force, whether feminine or masculine, doesn't matter. Um, but there are these rare figures who, who represent another realm. I keep thinking of that passage from Proverbs. Proverbs 6, you know, um, playing in the fields of the Lord before creation. Wish I had that, but playing in the fields of the Lord is that wonderful image of wisdom who was already present before creation. It's like a child. It's, it's an image of Christ. It's the Logos. It's, it's wisdom. It's Christ. There in the fields, playing in the kind of what a wonderful image. Anyway, they always bring this wisdom. Because its end, and here's the, here's the crucial thing, its end is for itself. Everything in the world takes a, tends to take a practical order. I want to get this in order to get this. To step into that world of wisdom where you're doing something for its own sake is to stand with God. Because why did God create us? Because he wanted people to bow, this is Milton, he wanted people to bow down to him or this tyrannical kind of school teacher? He created the world freely. Really, he created us in his image. He gave us an autonomy that nothing else in creation has. So if we're going to love like God, we're called to love things in themselves, not for something we get out of it. Not for a reward, not to get something out of it because then it just makes it selfish again. To do something for the good of that thing itself. That's St. Thomas at the core. You do something for the good of that thing itself, not for other reasons. Because when those other reasons come in, they're usually us. So it's always feminine. It's of another order. It's for itself. Um, so in, in all these different respects, she's an image of Christ. And so appropriately, she's the one to take over from Virgil to help Dante complete this task. Because his end now is not natural virtue, unearthly, you know, going into hell, coming up purgatory. It is to be reunited with God. 
Um, we, I took a look at the scheme. Um, I don't want to go through it. I, the most important thing to remember here is that the, the ancients believed that from the moon down, what we call a sublunary world, this was a world of mutability, mutability, of change. Everything was in flux. It was a world of mutability. Mutability. Everything from the moon out was an immutable world, unchangeable. This is one of the great Renaissance doctrines. You can't read anything in the Renaissance without coming to this because this is a radical change took place then. Because everything was in flux and everything was subject to death and decay, things were constantly changing, they could not be known. They were unknowable. There was no science. This was the ancient view of things. The Copernican changed this because it saw that the sun was at the center of the universe and the earth was one of the planets. And because it was one of the planets, it took its place with those things that were eternal, unchanging. And when that happened, man became knowable. So the Copernican revolution radically changes everything. Man can become knowable. That's why the sciences emerged then. But interestingly, I just want to underscore this. Even though that's so, from one perspective, remember, it's the poets who show that there is a meaning to this changing world. That's what the poets show us. That this thing called honor, as screwed up as it could be, is in the Iliad. There is a right honor. There is a, this natural dignity in man. As screwed up as marriages can be, as terrible as they can be sometimes, and as painful, there's, there's a possibility of a better marriage. That was the Odyssey. As screwed up as cities can be, as awful, but torn by strife, there is this city that's possible called Rome. That was Virgil's great subject. So all the great poets, they saw that the gods had lived in this eternal world with unchanging things. And, and they also saw, because they did, those gods could bring those things to the aid of men and help men achieve a better life. The Iliad, the Odyssey. Sorry to keep going back to those. I feel like I'm doing an advertisement here. Um, so that's, that's where we were. We, we talked about the scheme, and, and I touched on this, and I'm not going to go into it right now except to say that remember that um, discourse on the body, because it, it's at that place where um, this is on page, I'm, I'm not going to go to it, but if you want the, it's on page 338. That's that point where, remember, he's, um, Stasius is talking about how the semen is pure blood, and how it enters the womb, and he, he describes the formation of life, and then God coming in and and um, making the soul immortal when the brain, when the intellect is formed. And he says on page 338, it takes on the form of our desires, because Dante was puzzled how Virgil could have held him on his shoulder when Virgil's a shade, and when Stacy's tried to um, grasp him in affection, his arms went through. And Stasius makes that claim that the form, the, the body, take the shade takes on the form of our desires that according to the faculties, the ardor of our love, the, even as a shade, the shade can take on a different sense. The reason I want to remind you of that is when we go into the, par 
piece of, Dante is going to be doing lots of things with the human body. You all know that. He's going to be, the body is going to be moving through space faster than light. The body is going to enter another body. He enters the moon. And we have to ask why. And Dante gives us the answer. He's, he makes it clear again and again. It's the ardor of our love. He doesn't lose the body. It becomes transformed, radically transformed. And it doesn't seem to be subject to the laws of nature as we know them here. Because remember, he's entered a supernatural or He's still in the natural order, but he's being, he's being helped in supernatural ways to do things. Remember, Paul went to the third heaven. Dante's going to go through the heavens and actually into the Imperium. So. so a number of things that we saw, and one of the most important to remember, Beatrice makes those two commissions to his writing. That's the first time that I can call that, that Dante becomes aware that he must come back to write about this. He gets that from Beatrice, who, gets it, who comes from Christ. So if there's a question about, on the reader's part, whether this is prophetic or not, Dante's covered his tracks. All, all the epic heroes, Iliad, Odyssey, Aeneid, every epic hero has had a divinely appointed task. It comes from the gods. He has to carry a special burden, something that's going to set him apart. It's going to be heavier, more difficult, but it always carries the help of the gods. Whether it was Athena helping Achilles, or Athena helping Odysseus, or Venus helping Aeneas, the gods were always present. Whether they saw them or not, the gods were always there. Did Dante see the gods in the beginning? Darkwood? No. There was already this action being undertaken on his behalf. He had no clue about it. The gods are always there, working on behalf of men. So that's just a quick review. Um, okay, I want to read through some of the some of our some of these cantos, um, and then I'm going to give you that quiz that I threaten you all with. You all ready for a quiz? Absolutely. Oh, good for you. Good for you. Good for you. Okay, you're excluded. Okay. Karen, you no, don't have to take it. Everybody else no, does. No, she's going to answer for us. <laughs> okay, let's... Page um, 391. I'm going to just read a couple of paragraphs because... There are others that I could include, but it seems to me these give us what I think may be the most important principle to hold on to while we're reading. On Saturday when Suzanne and I came to Mass, I, I looked at the uh, little advertisement in the bulletin where it has a little Renaissance picture, you know, literature's prophecy. I think it was there. Um, where it's, and it, and the, the underscore line was, Christ where we don't expect to find him or something. Right. Remember the whole purpose of this class was to find Christ in literature. Well, find Christ in the world for me it was that literature would help us to see him where very often we don't expect to find him. The whole, otherwise there was no point. The, the whole point of this for me was to show that there was a prophetic quality that he's far more present to us than we know we just don't see. And this, the importance of sight is not small here. I'm going to 
Anyway, I, I think all of these quotes will go to that. And then what I'd like to do is just briefly go through these, these, opening, um, these opening cantos and remember to look at these things, the, the moon spots, the carta, uh, um, Justinian, and justice, and um, temperance, which was Charles Martel, and the whole issue of temperance that begins here. We're going to have several cantos here, but what am I missing? I'm missing something. Um, fortitude, justice, temperance. I think that's it, you know, that those are the things that, and I, the, the challenge that I put to everybody is these seem so diverse. They're, they don't come under one single category. They belong to different categories. One's physics, another's a person, another's a quality of being, a virtue. What do they have in common? What's Dante doing? Um, um, let, me, let me suggest what I think he's doing. Page 391. The Paradiso begins. I'm just going to read um, five from five sections, and then I'd like to go through these. Page 391. The glory of the one who moves all things penetrates all the universe reflecting in one part more and in another less. Sounds like the moon spots, even before we get there. I have seen in his brightness shining heaven and seen such things that no man, once returned from there, has wit or skill to tell about. For when our intellect draws near its goal and fathoms to the depths of its desire, the memory is powerless to follow. How can, how can the memory contain an experience of the infinite? Can't. But still, as much of heaven's holy realm as I could store and treasure in my mind shall now become the subject of my song. Don't forget, this is a song, it's a canticle. A great Apollo, this is his invocation. He places himself now with the other epic poets. Um, page 395, you go over. Um, <clears throat> this is shortly after Dante and Beatrice have risen, and you know that their rising is described as a faster than light, they are on, on the top of 394, they're transhumanized. It cannot be explained per verba, so let this example serve until God's grace grants the experience. The example he gave was of Glaucus um, tasting the herb that, that suddenly made him like a god so that he could do things. What Dante's saying is that in some ways he's almost been made like a god. He's not limited by the laws of time and space that we, as we know it as humans. He asks her in 395 how this could happen. Though I rest content concerning one great wonder of mine, I wonder now how, can, how I can rise through these light bodies here. She sighed with pity <laughs> when she heard my question and looked at me. Every once in a while, you know, we, I heard it last night, we were watching television and this, this black man was interviewing these black cops about the police white community problems that we're having. And the, and the policeman, black policeman, was saying, if they would only follow directions, because one of the first things you do is protocol to tell them to do something, take your hands out of your pockets, do something. 
because they're not, they may be a gun. I mean, I just, I just what's going on today, amazing. The, the other guy, the interviewer said, that's, that's a little bit odd, isn't it? It's like you're in your face expecting somebody to comply with you. <laughs> of course you are. There's some concern about danger here, but anyway. Um, it's being a bit pushy. Beatrice, <laughs> can you imagine being with Beatrice? If, if Dante kept saying, what an attitude you've got. Why are you talking to me that way? He would never he would never be where he is. He's only where he is because he's learned docility or humility to be open to what she has to say. Um, um, it's just it, the, the humor for me continues because remember those last verses I wrote at the, or read at the end of the purgatory when she's talking to Matilda and Matilda feels like she's got to cover herself up. Beatrice carries something divine in her. Dante's in the presence of that. He knows that. So, Among all things, however disparate, here's her explanation. However disparate, there reigns an order, and this gives the form that makes the universe resemble God. She said, there in God's higher creature see the imprint of eternal excellence, that goal for which the system is created, and in this order all created things, according to their bent, maintain their place disposed in proper distance from their source. The Logos. Hmm? The Logos. Yeah, it's here, yes. Okay, what I should have done is just copy this out. <laughs> Where's my head? That's the explanation right there. In this order, all created things according to their bent maintain their place disposed in proper distance from their source. Therefore they move all to a different port across the vast ocean of being and each endowed with its own instinct as its guide. That what I call that, what Thomas calls the, ap the appetitive in each thing. This is what carries fire towards the moon. This is what moving force in mortal hearts. This is the moving force in moving in mortal hearts. This is what binds the earth and makes it one. Not only living creatures void of reason prove the impelling strength of instinct's bow, but also those with intellect and love. The providence that regulates the whole becomes forever with its radiance the heaven wherein revolves the swiftest spheres. That's the, by the way, that's the prima mobile. If, if you go back to the other side, the, the prima mobile, first mover, the prima mobile is, is moved by God outside of time, and that prima mobile imparts motion to all the planets in their different ways. So everything that's intelligible has its source in God, comes from that prima mobile. If you read Aristotle, you'll, 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 or a lot of this is from Aristotle who says, there has to be a first mover. You just can't keep going back ad infinitum to explain causes. There has to be a cause of all of them that set them. He called that the first mover, that was God. That was incorporated into the scheme of the universe. The prima mobile gives movement to everything else. To there, to that predestined place, we soar, propelled there by the power of that bow, which always shoots straight to its happy mark. But it's true that just as form sometimes may not reflect the artist's true intent, the matter being deft to the appeal, just so God's creature, even though impelled towards the true goal, having the power to swerve, may sometimes go astray along his course. What's he going to meet in a minute? The Carter and Constance who didn't fully give their wills, who predestined place we sort of propelled by the power of that bow which always shoots straight to its happy mark. But it's true that just as form sometimes may not reflect the artist's true intent, the matter being deaf to the appeal, something gets in the way, 
that throws things off, whether it's in the natural order or in the human soul. Having the power to swerve may sometimes go astray along its course, and just as fire can be seen as falling down from a cloud, so two men's primal drive, twisted by false desire, may bring him down. You should in all truth be no more amazed at your flight up than at the sight of water that rushes down a mountain to its base. If you, free as you are of every weight, had stayed below, then that would have been strange, as living flame on earth remaining still. Why is he moving upward? Because of the ardor of his love, like a flame. It can do nothing but rise, go back to its source. So that's as natural as water or fire rising. All you who in your wish to hear my words have followed, he warns us all. Um, go to, um, to page 238. 238. Oh, sorry, three, sorry, three, sorry, 398. He enters the moon, and, and remember that every, every planet has its own jewel likeness, its own color. And the closer we get, the farther away we get from the earth, which is dull and given to death, the closer we approach God, the more Jew-like, the more brilliance, the more effulgence there is. That is because it's closer to God, it radiates more of his life. So it's not an accident. Each one has a Jew-like light substance, um, its own character. We seem to be enveloped in a crowd as brilliant, hard, and polished as a diamond, struck by a ray of sunlight, that eternal celestial pearl took us into itself, receiving us as water takes in light, its indivisibility intact. If I was body on earth, we cannot think in terms of solid form within a solid, as we must here, since body enters body, then so much more should longing burn in us to see that being in whom we can behold the union of God's nature with our own. He's moved by love. He can't be otherwise. Remember, remember Stacy's discourse. Um, our body takes on the form of its desires. Dante's already gone through purgatory. He's purged his desires. He's been put on a rack by Beatrice, which took him to his core. He's prepared. He's opened himself now to a divine love. So everything that moves him now is this divine love. Um, <clears throat> the greater the longing or adoration, the more the body assumes another condition. There's something transcendent happening. And by the way, to go back to my that quote that I, the passage I read from the Mass, you know, the different tongues. Um, see if I can take a second to explain this. I, I was putting it in terms of all the great diversity that Dante presents us with, all unified that everything has a different nature and yet they all have the same source. So I, I love the analogy that they were all speaking in different tongues but everybody there could, ex could explain or could hear them. Think about this for a second. That's what Dante's facing in heaven. Does everybody in heaven speak Italian or in translation? I hope everybody's wrapping around that. Everybody in heaven, has it, every, every person has his own language. What happens when we get to heaven? Are we all going to speak our own language? If we are, it's clear that we're still going to hear them in the language native to us. Now, what makes that possible? The Word. Christ. The Word. 
whatever light that is for us. But I, I'm saying that right now because lots of things are going to start taking place in the Paradiso that no poet has ever done. I'll touch on one of them in just a second. What Dante's doing with time and space, no poet has ever gotten close to. We're, we can't look at time and space the way we do here on Earth. Everything that he's doing, right from the beginning, transhumanized. He's, he's flown up faster than light. He's entering a body. If we don't imaginally enter into that, we're not seeing what paradise is. Because he's transcending time and space as we know it. It's crucial to see that. We've got to imagine that. When we take the Eucharist, any of us, I just think it's crucial that we see we're entering the kingdom. However much we're bound here, time and space has got to be. We, we, we've got to be aware something is going on here. Otherwise, we're taking grape juice or wine or, you know. So the Catholic imagination is very much at work here. I mean, utterly Catholic in the truest sense here. Dante's opening a world. Um, page 410. This is one of them. Start over in 409. This is Canto 4. Um, um, he, let me, hold, sorry, let me go back for a second. He meets with Picarda, and Picarda tells him that she and Constant were not constant, firm in their wills. You all know the stories if you've read them. They were both nuns. They gave their will to God. Both of them were taken out by force by men. And neither one of them did what Dante expected them to do to be constant to the point of death in holding to their vows. Um, 406, I read that passage. She says to, to be one with his will. Um, um, page 411, Beatrice tries to explain the, um, the problem here. Dante says on page 409, If then I stood there mute, drawn equally to my two doubts, I, I merit neither blame nor praise, the victim of necessity. How can they be faulted for being victims of necessity? The men force them. Right? Um, on page 412, you heard Picardo say that Constant had never lost devotion to the veil. This must seem to contradict my words. Often, my brother, it occurs that men against their will to avoid a greater risk have done that which should never have been done. She gives examples. You understand when things like this occur, how will and the violence can mix to cause offenses that can never be condoned. Absolute will does not consent to wrong, but it consents insofar as it fears, if it draw back, to fall into worse trouble. Go down. Beloved of the first love, Lady Divine, I said then, you whose words bathe me in warmth, wakening me to new life, the depth of my deep love is not profound enough to find the thanks your graciousness deserves. I see man's mind cannot be satisfied unless it's illumined by that truth beyond which there exists no other truth. Within that truth, once man's mind reaches it, it rests like a wild beast within its den. What a beautiful image of Dante. He's like a beast. He, he's had this unquenchable thirst for knowledge. Like a beast. He, he can't learn enough. Um, 
um, if not all desires in vain. Um, she, she gives the example of the, of the uh, Lawrence on the grid, remember when I think he was forced to put his hand on the grid to burn before he would renounce his God. Beatrice is making a distinction between what I think Thomas would call the relative will and the absolute will. That even though Constance was taken by force, she never gave up her commitment to Christ. She did it as a concession to protect her life. So even though it's measured against Lawrence or some, some of the examples that we have in, with saints or martyrs who give their life, it doesn't damn them. What it shows is a weakness in will. So she's located here. If you, if you go, if we look at the scheme of things, Constance and Picard are at the level of the moon because of a weakness in fortitude. So they weren't undone. They didn't deny that there was still a fortitude to them or they wouldn't have held on. But it, 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 it wasn't a fortitude complete in the way that it would have been, say, in a martyr, in a St. Lawrence. Um, so what we're learning as we move up this first stage are these are the natural virtues, but with some weakness, some lack, some deficiency in the virtue. It wasn't a complete or perfect as it would be in a saint. Um, now go back to 410. When she's describing the... Um, the difference between these two wheels at the top of 410, she says, not the most godlike of the seraphim, not Moses, Samuel, whichever John you choose, I tell you not, Mary herself has been assigned to any other heaven than that of each, than that of these shades you have just seen here, and each one's bliss is equally eternal, and lend their beauty to the highest sphere, sharing one sweet life to the degree that they feel the general breath of God. Eternal, sorry, eternal breath of God. These souls appear here not because of this fear has been allotted them, but as a sign of their less great degree of blessedness. All of them are in perfect bliss, but each of them, according to the degree of some merit, their openness to grace, or their, in this case, they're giving their wills to God in vows, and then being deficient in some way. Um, but the word I want, I want to call attention at the top of four ten. Not the most godlike of the seraphim, not, not Moses, Samuel. People will come to Dante at the appropriate level to reveal that level because Dante isn't prepared to, to meet God in all of his brilliance. He has to be prepared. So he's going to meet gradations of this celestial effulgence, this brightness, the radiance of their goodness. So they're good. They're perfect. Remember Picarda's words. She said... Um, in order that our rank from high tide throughout the realm is pleasing to the realm, as to the king who wills it is his will. It is his will, our peace. To be otherwise would be to be at odds with God. They are at peace with God according to the degree of their merit. Now, um, two things right here. Not the most godlike of the seraphim, not Moses, Samuel, whichever John you choose, I tell you, not Mary herself, has been assigned. They're there to reveal themselves. The line, not the most godlike, in Italian, in Dante's vernacular, it goes, not the most in godded. And I want to throw that out to you. I'm going to come back to it because I'll give you a sheet later with some examples of this sort of. Dante keeps using this reflexive verb. 
not the most ingodded of the seraphim. I hope that's clear, ingodded of them. He keeps using these reflection, these reflective verbs to show there is this in-powering, this in-willing that takes place. In, in everything in creation, God is in being with them. How could it be otherwise if they're getting closer to God? As Dante moves up the Paradiso, the heavens, Beatrice anticipates his thoughts always before he expresses them. And there are these constant descriptions where he goes, you are in othering before I, you in me before I in you. That they are entering each other. How could it be otherwise if we're becoming one in spirit? we would begin to know each other in a different way. Now this goes back to that opening line I read, God is present in everything. He, in the moon spots, didn't touch on it, remember it, the proof was, Dante said that most people think that the moon spots are, are an indication of rarity or density of matter, and he said not so. And he gave us one of his arguments, the uh, eclipse, because when the eclipse comes, if that was true, you'd see greater or lesser light, and that doesn't happen. And he said, if you're still in doubt, do this experiment, take these lights and, and move them at different distances to simulate rarer and greater density so that one remove farther means that the matter going back farther is a little bit less rare or more rare. And he says it's not true because the light will be the same and he's allowing for a change in light. He's just using a scientific argument to, to show that that's not the explanation. What he's showing is that each thing has, if, if we, I'm not going to go back to that, but he says each thing has its own faculties, its own properties. And it receives this light from the prima mobile, the spirit that's given to the stars, and the stars disperse them among the planets, and then the planets themselves. So Dante's recognizing that there is this determination in nature, that the, that the, planets influence us and that we we share in that determination otherwise we couldn't have DNA or that there are certain things that can't be other than they are the, what the philosophers would call necessity it is because it can't be other than it's science's job to get to those things to learn what they are and the reason we can learn them is because they can't be other they're certain they're fixed but he says that um, the, the God gives this, what he does in imparting all of this to the creation, the prima mobile, to the stars, it's dispersed. So everything in nature receives according to its particular faculties, its makeup, its, its material makeup and its spiritual makeup, whatever enters into its life. That's true for things, it's true for humans, that the women, um, Remember that line I read that unless the human will swerves from it, that if they were in perfect accord with God's will once they gave their will to God, they would have had a greater virtue, a greater radiance. They're still blessed. They're still perfect in happiness. They grudge nothing. They're not missing anything. But Dante's accounting for this great variety in creation. Um... This last, this last passage I want to read on page 415. So there is this in Godding. God is present in everything in creation. That was that opening line that I read, right? 
The glory of the one who moves all things penetrates all the universe, reflecting in one part more, in another less, according to its nature. Um, Four fifteen. What's the line I'm looking for? Mm -hmm. The more one sees or knows, the more he loves. Yeah, the very top of four fifteen. If in the warmth of love you see me glow with light the world below has never seen, stunning the power of your mortal sight. Dante is constantly stunned. He will actually go blind at one point from her beauty. It's so, it will be so that the higher he goes, the more brilliant it will be. You should not be amazed, for it proceeds from perfect vision, which the more it sees, the more it moves to reach the good perceived. Let me repeat that again. If in the warmth of love you see me glow with light the world below has never seen, stunning the power of your mortal sight, you should not be amazed, for it proceeds from perfect vision, which the more it sees, the more it moves to reach the good it could perceive. Think about how important that is as a principle of the whole action, the move up paradise. The more one sees of God, the more one loves, the, the, the more the ardor burns within him, the more he wants. The more he wants, the more he opens his sight to learn more. It's unending. Remember that image I gave you of the griffin? Looked on it, and his hunger was satisfied and set on for wanting more. If God is infinite in heaven, how can that not be anything but an incre infinitely increasing joy? How do you get to think that? Anyway, remember that. You should, be, you should not be amazed, for it proceeds from perfect vision, which the more it sees, the more it moves to reach the good perceived. The more one learns to see something, the more one longs for it. Why are we together? I mean, there's no reason to be here if it wasn't to help us see that Christ is more around us so that our ardor would grow. Um... um just two quick things here. Um, um, Let's see, can we get out of here? I can't keep praying. Um, when he comes to, to the Mercury, the level of Mercury, um, on page 422, Dante and Beatrice meets Justinian, who wrote the Code of Law, and he says himself, that um, on page 421, before I had assumed this task, I thought that Christ had but one nature and no more. That is, he was deficient in justice because he didn't see. This is the great mystery informing everything that goes on. Everything that goes on. Why? Because Christ himself took on matter. God was already present in matter when he created it in some ways. But God actually entered matter when he was incarnated. And remember, he was the means of creation. So since he was the means of creation, it means he's already present in creation, whether we see him or not, he's there. And he made it visible to us, apparent, obvious, when he took it on himself. So Justinian um, was deficient in justice because he didn't see things as they were. He thought Christ only had one nature, not two. He describes the, the, the history of the Roman 
banner, the justice, the eagle. And interestingly, for those of you who've been here since the Iliad or the Aeneid, he says, to make it plain to you how little cause have um, those who move against the sacred standard be the ones who claim it or disdain it. He's criticizing both the Gelfs and the Ghibellines because they're either denying Roman justice or supporting it for the wrong reason. With this, your first question is answered now, but I have answered in such a way that I'm forced to add on something more to make it plain to you how little cause have those who move against the sacred standard, be it the ones who claim it, the Ghibellines, or disdain it, the Gels. They, they all do it for the wrong reasons. They're tearing things apart because they've got a false sense of justice. So this is going to be Dante's critique of the, the injustices that followed the church and that led to the crisis in his time, the, 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 the conflict between church and state. Behold what courage consecrated it, the courage which began with that first hour when Pallas died to give it its first realm. Somebody identify that. Who is that? Irene, who is that? Uh, Don't look at the notes. Was it, it was, um, what's his face, his friend. The Iliad's <laughs> friend. Right, no? I can't remember his name. Patroclus, you think of Achilles? Oh, yeah. This is from the Aeneid. Pallas was, remember, Evander's son, when they went mm -hmm. to see Evander to get help, and then they went back, mm -hmm. and, and Pallas yes. was the one who fought Turnus, yes. and Turnus stepped on his body yeah. and ripped the sword belt off. And, and the Aeneid ended with Aeneas about ready to spare Turnus, mm -hmm. and he saw the sword belt of Pallas and was outraged yes. at Turnus's arrogance and killed him. Yes. The history, interestingly, Dante sees the beginning of Roman history with that death. Yeah. It's, a, it's a sacrificial offering. Pallas gave up, he was this noble kid, a prince, had, had nothing but goodness ahead of him. And Turnus killed him, and not only killed him, but scornfully, just in contempt, killed him. That was the beginning of this, this work of a divine providence of God working in the world to bring Rome into existence, the eternal city. It was a sacrificial, this young kid who had nothing but promise. He goes through the whole history wonderfully here in, a, in just a brief time. On page 425, now marvel at what I shall add to this later. He's talking about the, the, the banner, the, the justice. Let, um, add to this later. It sped with Titus, one of the emperors, to avenge the vengeance taken for the ancient sin. That is, Titus destroyed Jerusalem, and Dante is saying, Titus didn't know this when he destroyed it, but... Dante is saying the Jerusalem was justly destroyed. Why? Because the Jews crucified Christ. Christ. Yep. Now marvel at what I shall add to this later. It's sped with Titus to avenge the vengeance taken for the ancient sin. He goes on to complete it. Now on page 429, this is Canto 7, which I told you is probably one of the most important, in the, maybe the most important in the entire Divine Comedy. Dante asks this question. How can a just vengeance be punished. If Christ, there's no meaning to Christ's crucifixion unless it was just. I hope that's clear to everybody. He went to a cross to, to fulfill justice. And Dante's asking, how can a just vengeance be punished? At the bottom of 428, 
My intuition, which is never wrong, informs me that you do not understand how a just vengeance can be justly can justly be avenged. Page 429 in the middle. Now listen to my reasoning. Once joined with its first cause, what's the first cause? Does everybody know that? Yeah. First cause is God. Here, I, I want to, I want to, because this is so clear. I mean, so important. First cause is God. God, the Protestants have no notion of this. First cause is God. We live in an order of secondary causes. It's a contingent world. We have a freedom here. But the first cause of everything is God. We live in a world of secondary causes that we have to learn to deal with. Okay? It's so important to see that because it helps explain a lot of things. Now listen to my reasoning once joined with its first cause. God, this nature was as it had been when first created, pure and good. It was God, how could it be otherwise? But by itself alone, by its own act, having abandoned truth and the true life, out of God's holy garden, it was chaste. That was Adam. A good. Um, then if the crucifixion can be judged as punishment of the nature assumed, no penalty could bite with greater justice. So if we look at the person who assumed the nature, no person was ever as innocent, less deserving of death, right? Because it was God. If the crucifixion be judged as punishment of that nature assumed, man's nature, because it had fallen with Adam, no penalty could bite with greater justice. It was a just act. Just as none could be judged as more unjust considering the person who endured it with whom that other nature was combined. So the nature he took on deserved punishment. The person who took it on didn't. Why is this paradoxical? Because in Christ we have a dual nature, a person and a nature. Right? God assuming our human nature. So if you look at the nature assumed, nothing was more just. Right? It was a fallen nature. It had to be punished. If we look at the person who assumed it, nothing could be more unjust. We've got a paradox. Now, it should not be difficult for you to understand the concept of your... Wait, sorry. Thus, one event produced different effects. God and the Jews both pleased by this one death, for which earth shook and heaven opened wide. That's one of the most biting indictments of the Jews that I've ever read. Both of them were pleased. Obviously, one for the right reason and one for the wrong reason. And because of the wrong reason, Jerusalem was destroyed as a just punishment for a just act. Is that clear? Is that okay? So Dante's taking us into the mysteries of justice once again here, how important justice is. And then in 431, he explains why all this had to happen. And we're out of time. Quickly, at the top of, I'll just rush through this. Dante wants to know um, why this happens and the bottom of 430 sin is the only power that takes away man's freedom and his likeness to true good and makes him shine less brightly it's our sins that diminish his darkness <clears throat> he says at the top of Beatrice um, wants to answer this question that Dante has your nature when it sinned once and for all in its first root was exiled from these honors as it was dispossessed of paradise nor could mankind recover what was lost, as you will see if you think carefully, except by crossing one of these two fords. 
either that God simply through clemency should give remission, or that man himself to pay his debt or folly should atone. Now fix your eyes on the infinity of the eternal counsel. Listen well, as well as you are able to my words. Given his limits, man could never make amends. Never in his humility could man, obedient too late, descend as far as once in disobedience he tried to climb. And this is why mankind alone could not make amends. God is infinite. We offended him. There's no way we could offend. We could go as deep infinitely because we're finite. There's no way we could have given satisfaction. That's clear, yes? Thus it remained for God in his own ways. His ways, I mean, in one of them or both, to bring men back to his integrity. But since the deed gratifies more the doer, the more it manifests the innate goodness of the good heart from which it springs, so then that everlasting goodness which has set its imprint on the world was pleased to use all of its means to raise you up once more. Between the final night and the first day, no act so lofty, so magnificent, was there or shall there be by either way for God, who gave himself, gave even more, so that mankind might raise itself again than if he simply had annulled the debt. He could have simply wiped it out. Could he have done justice to us whom he created in his image if he did that? He gave us this great thing to just wipe it out. Would have... But the but the thing is, I mean, if he he did that, well, I mean, with Adam, I mean, I mean, the, yeah, the parallels, I mean, is that yeah, they sinned, and I mean, this is a the sin that he, but he annulled that by by kicking him out of the kingdom. Why didn't he just do that with I, he didn't with the annul. Jews? Huh? He didn't annul. He was damned. Adam was damned. Well, he, he damned. Well, okay, all right. He's held to his, he's held to a sin. Well, that's true. I mean, there's nothing he could. I hope that's clear. He's damned. I mean, we make that clear because yeah. when Christ goes in. Adam and the other, he's damned, and he has to be because of the sin. He has to be held. So God hold. I hope that's clear. The two choices where he could have wiped it out, or he, or he, or he could have held him damned eternally. Those are the two options. To wipe it out, it seems to me, would have been a dishonor to himself and humans because he made humans accountable in his image. So he, so he could have done one or the other. But now, to satisfy all your desires, I go back to explain a certain point. You, th- you think I see the fire, see the air, that water, earth, and all the which combos last for a while. And goes, um, where does he go? Oh, sweet. For God who gave himself gave even more that mankind might rise himself than if he simply had annulled the debt. And any other means would have been less than justice if God, only son, had not humbled himself to take on more... So what he does is choose a mean, there's that Aristotelian mean, not damnation, not wiping it out. He chose it so that God could took it, Christ could take it and take it on himself, but in a way that would have involved man in his own redemption. Um, and then he talks about secondary causes. We don't have time. The soul of every animal and plant is drawn from a potential complex by the stars raised by their sacred motion, but the supreme bent Beneficence breathes forth your life directly, filling it with love for him whom it desires every more. From what I have said, you may infer your resurrection, because God made man immortal. He was, you, it, it implies an ultimate resurrection. He could have left him damned eternally, could have wiped it out, which would have been a slur against justice. What he did was 
um, much harder, more in the nature of a paradox that involved us. Canto 8, I, I don't want to go into this, but just very briefly, in Canto 8, Dante meets Charles Martel, and in Charles Martel gives one of the, I, I wish all parents were asked to read this. Charles Martel, Dante says on page um, 437, you made me happy, now make me wise, because he couldn't tell who he was. He's hidden in his own beauty, his light. His light is too bright, he's concealed, and he doesn't know he is. Your words have raised a question in my mind. How can sweet seed produce such sour fruit? How can somebody bad come out of a good family? And then Dante gives this explanation that too many people, try, too many parents try to make their kids do something, or too many kids choose to act in a way that's out of accord with their own nature. That if more people would act in accord with their own nature, there'd be less misery in the world. That means, now go back to what we've been saying from the beginning. God is everywhere. He's distributed these gifts. The more people work in accord with their nature, the more they're working in accord with God. How can we do that if we don't learn to read nature? What in the modern world is helping us to learn the Protestant? Nature's corrupted. Catholics who are half Protestantized, nature's corrupted. If we don't learn to read nature, we're in trouble. This estrangement from nature is one of the definitions of modernity. I mean, we, we, in some ways, given our faith and our call to bring faith and reason together, we have got to recover a proper relationship with nature, to work with it, to give ourselves to it, to look to it for guidance, to be with Christ with it, to, to use these powers. Everything that Beatrice is doing in Dante's final stage is to bring supernatural graces to her powers of reason, to her powers of explanation, and, and to us, so that we can learn to see more deeply. Because remember, the more that we see, the more our ardor is increased, the more our love. Question. Two yeah, weeks, good. Two weeks from today is Memorial Day. Oh, yeah. So does that mean the church is closed? Um, the last word I got is it's closed. So I'm assuming everybody... Um, I, it seems to me the best thing to do is just to cancel for that Monday and meet the following Monday. Is that okay with everybody? Yes. Okay. But that's not this coming Monday. Following, no. And next week I'm going to raise the question, so I'd, if everybody will make a point of coming earlier, I want to talk with you about whether or not you want to continue with Shakespeare, or should we stop this and call it an end. <laughs> Let me know what you guys want to do, okay? We should continue, but give us a break. What? We should continue, but give us the summer off. Okay, we, you guys let us, I want to hear what you guys want.